Before I begin, I want to first of all welcome everybody. I also want to welcome our friends from Pine Cove. I believe we have a few folks in here. Happy to have you guys here. For those of you who don't know, the Pine Cove group is going to be here for the week with Camp in the City here at the Harbor. We're hosting it. Uh, so very exciting time, and we are happy to, uh, to have you all here. The video itself was a slight representation of something that happened to me this week. Not the part where I uh, insulted somebody if they had gained weight. Uh, I didn't have that happen to me, so don't panic. But I resolved what seemed to be a multi-year conspiracy from my seat. So a number of years ago, the organization that I worked in, part of my responsibility was to review financial statements and report out on the results. And over time, I found that the spreadsheets that people were printing for me seemed to be getting a little bit smaller, the letters. I thought, man, my finance department is giving me a problem here by shrinking the font. I can't believe that they would do that. And then I would go to restaurants, and I found myself having a little trouble reading the menu. And I thought, man, why does every place I go have bad lighting? Because it had to be the lighting. And then the thing that really sealed the deal for me that it was a conspiracy was I thought for sure that one of my boys had changed out my Bible for one with smaller print. I thought, okay, somebody is out to get me. Well, then this week I went to the eye doctor, and lo and behold, it hasn't been a conspiracy. The eye doctor said that, yeah, your eyes don't work as well as they used to. And I got a prescription. Now I have to wear glasses when I read, but I'm shocked now at how clear things can be. And it actually reminded me of the series that we're in right now, this In the Beginning. As Rick has shared for the last three weeks, through the first three chapters of Genesis, there are these lenses that we can apply to the Bible when we read it that can help make it more clear. And not only more clear, but I think we can more directly understand what God is saying. So now I get glasses where I can actually see the words more clearly, but seeing what God has to say in the Bible sometimes can be a challenge, and this series is about how we can read our Bible. If you've been here for all now what is four weeks, congratulations, good job, but what we covered in the first week was this idea of creation, and that when God created, it was all good, and it was all made for good. And that serves as a lens that we can read the balance of the Bible with that idea. But then in week two, we looked at Adam and Eve and the idea of this perfect relationship. Not only Adam and Eve's relationship with God, the one who created them, but God's relationship with his perfect creation at that time. And if you recall that we covered the idea of God in that moment with them providing purpose, protection... And provision. He was the ultimate provider for them. Much of what God intends for us. Then in week three, we covered the fall. I always feel like there should be dramatic music after you say the fall, like dun-dun-dun. But when sin enters the world, and Adam and Eve buying into a lie and choosing their own way, and right in that moment, you see the introduction of pain, pain in childbirth, Difficulty in work, separation from God, and death, both physical and spiritual, all enter the world in that one moment. And if the story ended there, it would be very, very depressing and sad, but it doesn't. Now, I do think at that exact moment in time, in my personal opinion, that was probably the darkest point in time in the history of the world. Right in that moment, 
when man shows their own way and separated from God. But then you look at the last four verses of Genesis chapter 3, and inside of those verses, you're going to see this magnificent gift of God's grace. And I'll tell you guys, I've read Genesis multiple times. Never in my life until I applied the lenses of grace did I see what I see in those verses. So I'm excited to unpack that here as we uh, dig into it today. But what if I told you this? What if I told you that grasping the fullness of God's grace, and I mean feeling like this deep sense of awe and grabbing hold of the power of God's grace, like grasping God's grace, what if I told you that that could change the way you read the Bible? What if I told you that that could change the way that you draw nearer and surrender more of your life to Christ? Would you be interested in hearing about it? I think you would. It's the idea of looking at grace through a fresh set of eyes, through new lenses. And that's where we're going today. We're going to look at two lenses of grace that a lot of times can be either missed or, quite frankly, taken for granted. Those lenses are the all of grace. We're going to unpack that a bit. And then we're going to look at the power of grace, what God has intended for it. So if you have a Bible, if you'd open to Genesis chapter 3, And take a look at verses 20 through 24. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to take a look at four truths inside of those verses. I want you to think about this. You're going to see four things. You're going to see God's care. You're going to see God's sacrifice. You're going to see God's mercy. And you're going to see God's accountability inside of these four verses. So I'll pick up in verse 20, and if you, if you recall, this is right after separation and sin, the darkest time in the world. And listen to what happens. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and Eve. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. By the way, I have a large print Bible. That's why I don't have to put those glasses on right now. So inside of those verses, you'll see God's care and sacrifice and mercy and accountability. And it starts in verse 20 and 21, where God cared for his creation. Look at the very first thing God does in the separation of sin. The very first thing he does, God clothes them. He makes clothes for them. Now, I don't know about you, but if those closest to me in the entire world had just done something that separated our relationship, about the last thing I would think about doing would be making them some new clothes. About the last thing I would think about doing was, quite frankly, doing anything for them. Yet God, right in that moment, he offers unearned and undeserved care for Adam and Eve. If you recall, and I know Rick pointed this out, this tree last week, this fig tree. At that exact point in time, Adam and Eve were clothed in fig leaves. Now, these are pretty rough, not very comfortable. And God makes new clothes for them. He's equipping them 
for the life that they're about to face. So you see his care for his creation, despite the sin and the separation. But the next thing you see is God's sacrifice. Note in verse 21 that God made those garments. They're made of skin. And I've asked myself, well, where did that skin come from? Like, where did God get it? Most commentaries, when you read them, will tell you that he sacrificed one of his animals that he had just created. And if you recall, at that point in time, everything that God created was perfect. No blemish. Nothing wrong with it at all. Yet God demonstrating his sacrifice and his love for his creation, he kills one of his perfect animals to make them clothes, to equip Adam and Eve. Now, because we're fortunate enough to know a bit of the rest of the story, you will see this as a preview of the perfect creation that will be sacrificed for us centuries later. But you see it happening right in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And then if we continue on to verse 22 and 23, you'll see this amazing demonstration of God's mercy. Now, when you read the words, sometimes it might sound a little bit confusing. This idea of Adam and Eve knowing good and evil, now they're going to be like us. You know, what was God concerned about? Was he concerned that they would be too strong, that they would overpower him, that they would be equal with him? No. God was all-powerful and had all authority. I really actually like the way the Amplified Bible's translation of these verses reads, and they'll come up on the screen. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knowing how to distinguish between good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life as well and eat its fruit and live, catch this, in this fallen sinful condition forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam away from the Garden of Eden to till and cultivate the ground from which he was taken. See, Adam and Eve broke unity with God when they disobeyed. They lost intimacy with him. They lost heaven. God could have let them live in that separated state forever. But instead, in a profound demonstration of his mercy, he drives them out of the garden. Imagine this. Imagine if Adam and Eve have access to the tree of life. Here's the tree of good and evil, tree of life on the other side. They could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever, completely separated from God. Removing them from the garden, taking away their access to that, I think is a powerful demonstration of God's mercy. See, God extended mercy, removed them from the garden. Now a new door can be open for a relationship back to him. So you see how God cares for them when he clothes them. He sacrifices for them. And he extends his mercy. And just if you like to keep records, just for the record, they've done nothing up to that point to deserve any of it and done everything up to that point to not deserve any of it. But then you look at how the chapter wraps up in verse 24. Notice what God did not do. God did not change any of the results of their sin. God didn't decide in that moment to say, you know what, let's, let's not worry about the pain in childbirth and the difficulty in work. I'll go ahead and take care of that. He didn't change that. Work was still going to be difficult. Childbirth was going to be painful. Their perfect, intimate relationship with God would be changed. The result of their sin and what it did stood in that moment. 
But here is an unshakable truth as you, as you read those verses. And look at the end of the third chapter of Genesis. That in the depth of their sin and in this new reality of pain and difficulty and severed intimacy, the worst case, God offers grace. Completely undeserved favor. And it's ultimately that offer that serves as a path to a restored relationship to God. And he did all of it. See, restoration would be made available to each of us through another sacrifice, the one I mentioned earlier, the sacrifice of Jesus. Restoration is part of God's plan, and it has been from the beginning. I like the way the Apostle Paul captures it in Ephesians 1 through 10. He says, and this is the plan. Can't get any more direct than that. At the right time, he, God, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. See, this is where God is headed, to bring everything together. See, the truth of what God did from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, it's what he did for each of us, for you and for me, through Jesus. And I really believe if we look hard at that truth, it should overwhelm us. It should capture our attention and stir our hearts in a way that draws us more towards the life God has for us. Not the life that we regularly want to design for ourselves. See, the amazing gift of God's grace enables this to happen. It enables us to draw nearer, to more fully surrender to his leadership. If we will comprehend and grab a hold of the awe of grace and then the power of grace. So I want to look at both of those lenses. Now, for those of you who don't wear glasses... Maybe the lenses analogy is hard for you. Hang on. Eventually, you probably will. I think we all end up there at some point in time. But you certainly have looked at something and not quite seen it clearly. And as it comes into focus, aha, that's what it looks like. Or that's how I understand it more. So I want to look at the awe of grace, this, this just overwhelming, grab your attention, awe. So in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, in fact, SJ read the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 earlier We didn't even plan that. must have been God's plan to make sure that we read the same verses. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You know, truthfully, I think you could read that verse, God saved you by his grace, period. And hang on to that for just a second. God saved you. In me, by his grace. Nothing more. He did the saving that captures, that can capture our attention and should capture our attention. Now, for those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus, I don't know if you've ever spent much time thinking about what your life might have been like if you hadn't surrendered your life to Jesus or if you hadn't received God's grace. Now, for some of you who maybe grew up Knowing Jesus at a young age, this might be a little bit hard for you to get your mind around. But for those of you who didn't, you might be able to get great clarity on this. I've done it myself, and truthfully, it's really sobering. You see, I think in the absence of surrendering my life to Jesus and accepting the free gift of grace, I think my life story would be one characterized by broken relationships and a never-ending pursuit of more. See, before I knew Jesus, my life was about me, and only about me. 
I'll share a couple of perspectives on that that hopefully paints the correct picture. But for me, success, I defined it with two words, accumulation and achievement. The more I achieved, the more I accumulated, the more successful I was. And that belief influenced where I spent my time. It influenced how I spent my money. It influenced my calendar. It influenced all that I did. I was willing to go just about anywhere in the interest of a promotion at work, and I would drive as far as I needed to if I knew somebody could help me in advancing my career. For me, what it looked like from a priority standpoint was my job was the most important thing to me. It became how I defined, it was how I defined myself. I was obsessed with success and the way the world defined it. Relationships, they, relationships were for me. As long as I was getting what I wanted out of a relationship, then everything was fine. The minute that things changed and became a little bit difficult, I wasn't very interested. Uh, full confession here, when it came to dating, my idea of commitment was the other person was fully committed, but I kept my options open. I'm a bit embarrassed to share this truth with you, but quite frankly, it was the realization of this single truth in my own life that probably most clearly painted the picture where I believe my life would be without the grace of God. So I've had one dating relationship in my entire life where the person I was dating was the only person I was dating. Now, that person happens to be someone I met 22 years ago, and we've been married now for 20 years. So I'm grateful that the grace of God changed the course of where I was headed. But, you know, when I reflect back on that, I know that there are people in my life and my past that I deeply, deeply hurt. And they were hurt as just a result of my selfishness, of me wanting to do and live however I wanted. And apart from God's grace, I don't have any reason to believe that that would have changed. I don't have any reason to believe that the path that I was on would have ever changed. See, his grace reminds me of what he did when I least deserved it. And it presses me to seek more of that each day. What about you? Can you get a picture of your life without the grace of God? Well, if you're not sure, I encourage you to spend some time, think about it. Because when you do, you'll see his grace in a fresh new way, in a way that can move you towards more fully surrendering. When we really gaze at the awe of his grace and what it has done for each of us. And the awe of God's grace is such a powerful lens But the power of God's grace also is available to each of us. See, when you look at uh, that last chapter of Genesis and those last few verses, that in the beginning, you actually, you see the power of God's grace. He provided, God provided Adam and Eve with protection. He changed what they were wearing. Animal skins are much stronger than fig leaves. Now, if you remember, work was still going to be hard. Childbirth was going to be hard. Life was going to be different, but God equipped them. See, what resulted from his grace served as a catalyst for Adam and Eve. It enabled them and equipped them to now go live the life that they're going to have to live. And it's the same for us. See, when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to God's grace, it enables us to live the life that God has for us. The Apostle Paul pointed this out and pointed out, part of the power of grace in Romans 6, verse 14. 
Listen to what he says. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. See, grace covers sin, but grace enables us to live free from sin. Not sinless, don't hear me wrong, but to live free from sin, to live in a way that it doesn't own you, it doesn't hold you, it doesn't have power over you. Grace has the power over sin. See, grace is alive both for us, but it's also alive in us. It's also alive in us. You know, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, and each, in each one of them, he ends the letter with really similar language. Most often, he uses this ending, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, one version or another, in every single one of his letters. He talks about grace working in our lives. You know, I used to read that, and I thought, well, why do I need grace still? I accepted it. I surrendered to Jesus. I'm good. Why does Paul say, may the grace of our Lord be with you? And then you realize the power of grace and how it enabled Paul and enables us to do what God calls us to do. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, catch it, but the grace of God with me. See, Paul received grace, but the grace of God, I am what I am. But then he talks about, but God's grace is how I live my life, through the power of grace. It worked in Paul and through Paul. Now, if you were here when Ricky Bolden talked about grace back in June, he used this phrase that we're not to be containers of grace, but conduits of grace. We're not to just receive it and hold on to it. That's not what grace is simply designed to do. It's also designed to be poured out. Grace has the power to strengthen, to strengthen followers of Jesus, to strengthen us when we have to do the difficult things, face tough situations. See, grace can when we can't. That's what grace is intended to do. Grace gives us power. It gives us power to live out what the Bible teaches. Here, consider these verses. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Seriously? Come on. I mean, look, we can be real here. Like, that's a nice concept. But pray for those who persecute me? I don't know how I could do that. The grace of God is how we can do that. When you consider that God loved you and me, even when we were in our own sin and enemies of his, he still loved us and still poured out his grace. I mean, that softens your heart when you look at what God has done for you. And that's how you can love your enemies. That's how you can pray for those who persecute you when you consider what God did for you and for me. Or in Matthew 20, 26 through 27, Jesus says, It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Like, wait a second. Be a servant and a slave? Are you kidding me? I'm not interested in that. How can I do that? How is that possible? Well, when you think about the moment in time when Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to earth 
and became but the son of a carpenter. And what he did for us, that we might have a restored relationship with God, he was a slave. He came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve. Jesus did it, I could do it. Why would I think that I should be any better? See, imagine for just a minute if each one of us was fully overwhelmed and captured by the awe of grace. Like we really saw it for what it is. And then we embrace the power of it. What impact do you think that could have on our lives? But more importantly, the people around us. See, I think here's something really important to grasp about God's grace from the very beginning. That it was offered freely, but make no mistake, grace wasn't free. I was recently reminded of this truth on a trip that we made to Washington, D.C., and we made the rounds and visited memorials, and it was a great time. But we came across this one particular memorial at the Korean War Memorial, or this particular sign at the Korean War Memorial, and I have a picture of it up here on the screen. It says, freedom is not free. And you know, when I think about that, I can relate personally to that really well. I've never been in the military, nor have I ever served my country, yet I live in freedom. But you know what? I know a lot of people who have. And it's not free. Many have given a lot. Many have given the ultimate and given their lives for freedom. So it is with grace. God on his own fully paid the price from the beginning. He made the sacrifice. He showed the mercy. And then he willingly offered it when people were in their greatest state of sin. See, grace provides us this way back to a relationship with him, and it can fuel us to live a life more surrendered to him, especially when we come across those things and we say, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. That's too hard. That's what grace does. So here's my challenge for all of us. The next time you open your Bible, if you have to use like real glasses, then you'll get this. If not, figurative ones. When you open your Bible and you put on those glasses, consider the awe of grace and the power of grace and read what God's word has to say. It will change how alive God's word can become and how much of an impact it can have on your life. You know, as I sit here and I speak a lot about the awe of grace and the power of grace, I know I've talked about it a lot in relationship to those who have surrendered their life to Christ. But I'm certain in a room this size, there's some who haven't quite made that decision yet. So you might be sitting out there going, I don't know that I quite connect with you. Well, let me just say this to you, that that power of grace is available to you. And it's available to you now. You know, the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we can be saved. You know, oftentimes I, when I talk to people about that, they'll say, uh, come on, it can't be that simple. I'm like, well, it is. But don't miss why. It is because God paid the price. Because God did the work. It's the only reason that it can be that simple. So in just a few moments, I'm going to pray, and I just invite you, if you haven't made that decision yet, and you've been on the fence, or maybe you're facing some difficult challenges, 
Or maybe you are thinking about your own life's path. And as you sit here today, you say, you know what? If I continue down this way, I don't think it's going to end all that well. Then you have the chance in this moment, today, right at the feet of the cross, right at the foot of the cross, to make that decision to surrender your life to Jesus. So we've spent three weeks, now four, uh, talking about this idea of, you know, hey, in the beginning, you read the first three chapters of Genesis and you see this setup for the entire balance of the rest of the Bible. And these lenses that we can read Scripture through that can have a huge impact on how we understand what God would have us do. You know, I mentioned earlier, we covered in week one creation. And not to forget, especially in today's world, not to forget that what God created was all created for good. All created for good. And then Adam and Eve in their relationship. But don't forget that God was the purpose giver, the provider, and the protector. He was from his very first creation, and he is today for us. And yes, in week three, we talked about the fall and the separation that that created. But then we can step into week four and look at grace. And God doing all of the work, unmerited, unearned favor. I know it's hard to comprehend sometimes because we're not, we don't necessarily think that way. We think sometimes things have to be earned. Things have to be merited. Not God's grace. It's been offered to each of us, and you can accept it today. It's an important thing to remember for every follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew that it would be an important thing to remember when on the night before he died, he celebrated a meal with those who were closest to him. Today we call that communion. But it's a time for those who have made a decision to surrender their lives to Jesus. It's a time where we remember what he did, where we remember the awe of grace, where we remember the power that grace can provide to us. We're reminded of his broken body and his shed blood. Just like God sacrificed and showed mercy to Adam and Eve in the beginning, he's done the same for us. And communion is a chance for us to remember that sacrifice. It's a chance for us to celebrate and with gratitude honor what Christ did for each of us. So I'm going to invite the band back up on stage. And I'd like to give you guys some instructions, and then we're going to enter into this time of communion, into this time of remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for each of us. But it's worth looking at this, idea, this lens of he did it in the beginning, chapter 3 of Genesis, and then it unfolds through the rest of Scripture. As a reminder, he did it all that we can accept it and draw near to him. So in just a minute, I'm going to give thanks with the bread and the juice, and then I'm going to pray. And then when you're ready, you guys can just begin to come, uh, come forward. If you're down on the floor, if you would just move to your left and come up the row, you'll see servers lined up here in the front. You can step up and you'll get a piece of bread and you can dip it into the juice. If you're up on the risers, there will be servers down in front of you. For those of you who are gluten-free, uh, then the gluten-free will be over here to my right, to, uh, to your left. I think that's all my instructions. 
I think what's most important is remembering what Jesus did. That very last night, with his closest friends, you know, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he told them, he said, look, remember this broken bread as my broken body. It was given for you. I'm going to give all for you. Just like he gave, has given all for me and for you. And then Jesus took the wine. And again, he gave thanks to his father. And he lifted it up. And he said, when you drink of this, remember this new covenant, my blood shed for you. And every time we do this, we can recall the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. See, remembering is a part of it. But also, engaging ourselves with God. If there's something that's standing between you and your relationship with Jesus, reconcile it now in the quiet of your heart before you come up here. And know that the gift of grace and that relationship is what he wants from you. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. For apart from grace, I can't imagine where lives would be. I know where I think my own life would be. Lord, thank you. Father, I pray right now in the quiet of each person's heart, if there's anything standing in the way of their full surrender, they're embracing maybe something challenging you're calling them to do, Lord, that they might set that at your feet and just simply say, yes, Jesus. Lord, from the beginning, you demonstrated your love by giving all. Lord, help us to be willing to give all today. We love you. We lift this up in your holy and precious name. Amen.